Yeah, I came up with a rule set for products that are a good product market fit for the economy of stupid. (laughs) Genius. Give us the economics. A framework of the economy of stupid. And welcome to Another Bite, the show where we rewatch some of the most innovative and most intriguing pitches from Shark Tank. I'm Jory Monroe, and I'm joined by Leslie Green. Hey, everyone. And John Dick. Hello. Today, we've got a product that sharks will want to take a bite of, another that's trying to make mosquitoes go finito. And finally, we've got a company that brings cat memes honestly to its whole new level. But first, hey, we've got bills to pay. So here's a quick word from our favorite and, well, our only sponsor. Ouch. Growing pains hurt. And when you're a marketer trying to generate leads for your startup, you know the pain all too well. Thankfully, there's HubSpot for startups. It's a special program that gives startups discounts on HubSpot and so much more. But first, let's talk about the platform. The platform unites your entire front office from marketing to sales to support. The platform that streamlines your support tickets, generates more leads, and increases sales. The platform that scales right along with you. HubSpot for Startups has it all. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot, visit HubSpot.com slash startups. So first up in the tank, we have I Want to Draw a Cat for You. And yes, that is the name of the company. I said that correct. It's both memorable and as this pitch would show, it comes with its own dance move. So I Want to Draw a Cat for You comes to us from Steve Gadlin, and he's asking for $10,000 for a 25% stake, which shakes out to about a $40,000 valuation. And what's so interesting about this company is, you know, you've got Steve, he's a dad, he's a husband, in his own words, he's living his normal life, building websites and staring at code all day. And insert, I want to draw a cat for you. So he comes into this pitch kind of doing this like side-by-side dance mood gyration and starts singing his pitch. (laughs) And the good news here is like the product very much matches the brand, right? Like what he says is what you're getting. So his entire business is that he essentially is making like the most charming cat drawings you've ever seen. He sells them for just under $10 and you send in (laughs) Steve like your desired cat whether that's fighting a T-Rex on the moon or, you know, just swimming in a bathtub of money. (laughs) And he draws this wonderful cat for you and sells it to you. And yeah, that's the business. It's so pure. I love it (laughs) so much. And it just reminds me that you can sell anything when you feel like (laughs) I may not be skilled. I don't know if I could start any type of business. This man is making money doing something he loves and brings him so much joy. That was my first hot take. Like who amongst us does not still have the I want to draw a cat for you jingle in their heads. It is just ringing through my head right now. I want to draw a cat for you. You can't not dance. And your shoulders start going and he's doing it on stage and all the sharks are all of a sudden doing it as well. Like he's got an earworm of a jingle right off the bat. I know Steve. I know Steve Gadlin. Do you? Stop. I do. So Steve (laughs) is an improviser in Chicago. He's a hit maker. He's made show after Mm -hmm. show after show in Chicago that are just so funny. He is right when he says that he's an ideas guy and that there's an economy (laughs) for stupid. I love the concept of the economy for stupid. Let's be clear here. Like these aren't photorealistic cats. These are completely (laughs) cartoons. They're memes, right? Like they're early version memes. Exactly. To your point, Jory, these are not detailed cats, but it is like serving and it's a 
making people happy. Mm-hmm. When I think about like why this works, I think about the customization of the product, the low price, low risk, straight up the product elicits emotion. Makes you smile. There's so many factors that go into something being successful, but humans are really driven by emotion and purchased by emotion a lot. And those were some things that stuck out to me as like, this seems ridiculous, but here's why it works. Yeah, I came up with a rule set for products that are a good product market fit for the economy of stupid. (laughs) Genius. Give us the economics. A framework of the economy of stupid. (laughs) Rule number one, people absolutely do not need this product. That has to be rule number (laughs) one of the economy of stupid. Rule number two, it has to be a worst version of something normal, okay? Rule number three has to be cheap enough that tons of people will buy it. And rule number four is that people will tell their friends about it. Mm -hmm. I think those are the four core rules of the economy of stupid. And the list that I came up with that check those boxes include things like the shake weight. Mm. (laughs) Good one. Chia pets. (laughs) Chia (laughs) chia. The whole adopt a star program where you could buy a star in outer space. Completely unregulated too. And cryptocurrency. (laughs) Bold. Those are the things I came up with. You absolutely crushed. This is textbook, economy of stupid. When are you going to write the book, John? (laughs) Okay, so if we have this framework, let's talk about how this company fits each of those bullet points then. So what was the first rule? You absolutely do not need this product. (laughs) But I need it, John. (laughs) No, you do not need it. You want it, which is more important. My fridge has never seemed so empty, John. (laughs) Number two, it has to be a worse version of something normal. Right. And I think with the cat drawings, I think he actually nailed that. Like Steve clearly does not go all in on quality of execution. Mm -hmm. They're very simple. Yeah, he's doing like 25 of these an hour. He's doing 25 (laughs) an hour. He's just sketching along and just drawing a little bit with a Sharpie. They're super simple. And I actually think that is pretty important. Mm -hmm. Has to be cheap enough that tons of people will buy it. Fair enough. $10 price point for a customized piece of art. Yeah, 995 is not bad. And then people will tell their friends about it. That last one is huge. And I think we've talked about this in past episodes where building a community and a community that's ready to advocate for you is such an essential part of when we think about like the flywheel of keeping that going because you need people to tell other people about it, especially if you are not having a ton of marketing budget, all that stuff. You've got to find a reason for people to like spread the word organically. This is a pre-Instagram product. Mm. So it's like easy to look at now and be like, oh, of course, people be tagging their friends, everyone to post their cat, like it'd be so fun. This is pre-Instagram. It feels actually like he was maybe a little early in terms of product market fit and that it would potentially be more successful given the way that social took off from like 2015 to 2020 versus back in 2010. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is he was a web developer and he posted all these pictures on his website. So he was even in a better position because, you know, that was his owned traffic, owned audience coming to him. It's true. You know, when you think about Instagram and Facebook, you're renting space. And, you know, tomorrow Instagram should be gone. And for any marketer thinking about building a community, you've got to figure out how do you take your community elsewhere where you can own the distribution? You know, I think, Leslie, your advice about building an owned community versus like a rented community is extremely valuable advice for the marketers who are listening. I do think for a product from the economy of stupid, (laughs) I think I'd probably worry a little bit less about owning my community because I think the things that matter most in the go-to-market is actually like speed to market and speed of diffusion of the meme into the world. Like, 
I don't think Steve envisioned that he would be drawing, you know, a thousand cats a week for every week for the rest of his life. I think he thought this was definitely something that would pop off, bring a lot of joy to the world. Maybe he'd make some money on the side. Got to know Mark Cuban doing it. So I would say I would prioritize probably an earned community over an owned community for a product like this because I think speed and network effect matters more and building that stuff takes time. How do you actually scale this? Like, how can you make more money if you physically can't draw more cats? Leslie, Steve's way ahead of you. So I bought a cat before. Have you really? Yeah, of course I did. (laughs) And in the email that he sends when he says your cat is complete and he links you to the picture of it, he also mails it to you. He has a link where you can buy a t-shirt. And so he like set it all up so that he could get a slice of it. He's the ideas guy. By the way, back (laughs) in the day, he had to do all that manually. He had to probably like piece that together with some cobbled together tech stack. Nowadays, like you can do that like super easily. You can set all that stuff up. It's pretty impressive how far the tech is when you look ahead a decade. Absolutely. So we have this sense that like the economy is stupid, has some marketability, but I'm not so sure that the sharks were entirely convinced they could see the long-term goals with this company. And we saw some mixed responses. Kevin, I think, was a little extreme. And he was like, well, what happens if a meteorite crushes you? Then who's going to draw me cats for royalties, you know? So Kevin didn't think it was a particularly investable product. I think Steve had one of the best takedowns of Mr. Wonderful I've seen on the show. I was so proud of him. Can I tell you something, Kevin? You know no, what I'm let him go say. Out. Just I let him go out. I want you to go out, and then I want you to go back to your hotel tonight, put your head on your pillow. I promise you the last thing that's going through your head before you go to sleep is I want to draw a cat for you. <laughs> you just nailed it. I was like, oh, yeah, so that's true. great. Absolutely not phased by Mr. Wonderful going out. Mark did it just right. The reason most of the sharks didn't want to invest is because this is not actually a business. Mm -hmm. This is a hobby business in the economy of stupid. Mark's not out there like quelling on the valuation. Mm -hmm. He's not actually worried about getting a huge return on his investment. He's just like, I like this person. I think they're really funny. I think they're gonna have a whole bunch of ideas over the next 10 years. I'll give you 25 grand and uh, hopefully I make my money back. I think Mark was really interested in like, this seems like a really fun, quick business, but what else does Steve have to offer potentially in the long run? So he made an offer for 33% of the company, a bit more than the initial asking, I believe, but for that 25K and a deal was made. But I think the most delightful part is when the sharks kind of join in on some element of the pitch and seeing Mark go up and do the, I want to draw a cat for you dance was like, chef's kiss of the episode. I saw he was booked out for a whole year to draw cats. And I think his prices are up to $25 now per cat. So inflation. inflation. (laughs) (laughs) So to kind of put a final spin on, I want to draw a cat for you. Definitely uh, still in business. You can actually still buy a cat from Steve if you so desire. You might be on a waiting list, but that's okay. Greatness can wait. In 2015, Steve actually had to close down his business because he had so many ideas that he had TV shows coming out. But thankfully, he did revive the business back in 2021 and as of today has drawn over 21,000 cats. So there's clearly a demand for this product. But part of the reason there's such a long waiting list is now he's focusing on drawing one cat per day and giving all the money to support artistic creativity. So ends with a happy note for Steve and you can still buy a cat, which is great. That's like 21,000 smiles. What a cool impact. Go Steve. 
Next up in the tank, there's Kinfield. And Kinfield is interesting because it's trying to tackle a problem that's actually making a lot of people frown, apparently, particularly in Minnesota. I've never been to Minnesota, but apparently there's a proliferation of mosquitoes. They joke that it's the state (laughs) bird. Sounds awful. And the problem with having a bunch of mosquitoes, and I've felt this too, is, you know, when you put on bug spray, there's that like drying period where it's like super sticky. You don't want to touch things. And then you're thinking about all the DEET that could be just getting everywhere. You can't touch and pet your dog. Anyway, so Nicole Powell comes to us trying to solve this problem of the mosquitoes, of the sticky spray with her product and line at Kinfield. So Nicole is asking for $250,000 for a 5% stake in her company, which equals a $5 million valuation. So we know we have the potential for something good here. So Kinfield is trying to use like citronella and lemongrass to kind of get away from those more artificial bug begones, if you will but essentially is trying to just lead this revolution of clean products that help families enjoy being outside. So thinking about this pitch, this problem, what are our first thoughts when it comes to Kinfield? I have been to Minnesota and it reminds me a lot of a place that I spent a lot of time (laughs) in as a kid, which is Maine. Fair enough. Maine has a very similar (laughs) problem to Minnesota, which is the mosquitoes. And accordingly, I put a tremendous amount of DEET on my body as a kid. (laughs) And I'm not sure if it's the reason I am the way I am, but it's possible that that is why I am the way that I am. Blame the deed. (laughs) I think that there is a huge market for non-chemical insect repellents. I think that it honestly Mm -hmm. is a huge growing trend that people do not want to put chemicals all over their body every day. And in particular, don't want to put it on their kids' bodies. And so I think that she is really onto something. The challenge has always been most natural insect repellents don't effing work. That's yeah. That's oh, the challenge, yep. okay? Everyone's like, oh, <laughs> I want to like put my hands up. <laughs> I remember as a kid lighting a citronella candle and being like, the bugs yeah. will stay away from, no, no. no. The bugs like, they They're feed like, off mm, that. What's that you know? nice lemon smell? <laughs> exactly. As somebody who's been historically harassed by mosquitoes and I'm from Austin and we have a ton of mosquitoes too, I just have not had success with natural bug repellents. And I know she went in and talked about the clinical testing. I want to test it for myself before I could ever buy this. And I think there may be a lot of consumers who are like that. Because yeah, same John, deep me, deep me up 100%. Like when I go camping, I smell terrible. My skin kind of itches, but I don't get bit by mosquitoes. That's uh. That's not the deal, Leslie. (laughs) Uh, Probably not. I want to try it, but I completely agree with you that there is a massive market for natural bug repellent. Yeah. I think a lot of her marketing and messaging would need to actually come from getting people to review the product, to actually give proof that it works, because I think lots of people want it, and it's just a question of whether it actually works for them. The, The way I was like thinking about this was, is this a good business or not? And it could be. I don't know. Like it's grown over hundred percent three years in a row. That's like really impressive revenue growth. Like that's something every entrepreneur wants to be able to say, and most can't. Second, it sounds like the product is actually good. It certainly smells good. And she's claiming that it works really well, but their problem actually is their ability to acquire customers cheaply. She says that her customer acquisition cost is $26, which having to pay $26 to acquire every person to buy 
bug spray, that's just not going to be sustainable over time. So to me, like assuming the product is good, I'm just going to assume that for the rest of this discussion, it's all about whether or not she can bring her customer acquisition costs down. And that's why I actually thought it was so interesting that one of the guest sharks that was on today was Tony from DoorDash. I love DoorDash. And Tony probably knows more about how to get digital distribution cheaply in a hyper-competitive market than most people in the world. And so I think he is a really interesting shark to weigh in on this. Same thing. Like, how do you get customers cheaper? And one thing that I was thinking about, like we talked about samples, even though that could cut into the cost a little bit, I Mm -hmm. think there's something there, whether it's through social, sending out free samples, like something small that helps you introduce yourself to the brand as well as if the product works. But a model that I was thinking about that could be really interesting for me, and this came to me as I was looking at their branding and sort of who I would assume their target customers are. Have you all heard of Curology? Mm -hmm. It's a subscription skincare service box where you're paired with a dermatologist, you get recommendations, you can customize your box. And it's that reoccurring revenue. And there was something in my head that kind of clicked where it was like, how could she learn from the success of Curology because they're one of the most successful skincare subscription boxes and make this work because this is something that you do have to buy over and over again. Like bug spray runs out pretty quickly. And so to me, I was thinking about, you know, you get the free sample, you get somebody in to see if they actually like it. Then you find a way to make a custom subscription box. She's already built a really seemingly loyal community on social. And so to me, you leverage the box subscriptions. You continue to build that community through what we're talking about, John, the reviews, actual videos of people using the product, showing the product out in the world. And then you've got that base of user-generated content to continue that cycle. And so that was one thing I was really thinking about that she could maybe find a way to get that acquisition cost down lower. But I don't know if, John, that speaks to you or not. Uh, I always worry. I worry about sampling just because it is expensive. And right now she has negative margins. And so her ability to properly run that sampling strategy could be challenged. But I think you're getting creative trying to overcome this challenge of people kind of need to like see it and feel it and try it to believe it. I was thinking about similar problems. Like how do you get people to believe that something could work? I know this strategy is a little outdated now, but I was a little bit like, isn't this just straight up like a mommy blogger play? Like, is this not just like, how do you get on every mommy bloggers summer list of essential products? Yeah. And so when it comes to sampling, Leslie, maybe you don't do broad mass market sampling. Maybe you actually just do sampling for influencer gifting and then put all of your marketing budget into influencer. And, you know, I think it actually could work. If I were her, I would focus a little bit more narrow to start, which is like, how do I just like figure out what my one or two core personas are? Mm -hmm. Got to imagine it's moms is probably the biggest persona there, both because they're women and women tend to care more about their skin than men. And number two, because they might care more about not introducing chemicals into their household as much and just go like super deep on those communities and find ways to get there. Yeah. The influencer gifting is really interesting when you find that like very core target. Now in this world of TikTok, Instagram, you need somebody to say like, build a eight second video that are here, my three summer essentials, they see the packaging. That's what I'd require. Yeah. I think there were a lot of these boxes that came along that just put a bunch of like random stuff in for you to try. And that's definitely an interesting way to get distribution. I think the key is being sure that whatever box she goes into has the right overlap with her target market. Absolutely. And so this question comes up and she seems to have a strong point of view on it, which is, should she go into retail stores or should she just stay online and direct to consumer? And my sense is like, 
I don't think she should go into retail right now. I know what she's saying, which is like, well, you need this stuff available at the last minute. Like people are going out, they need, you know, bug spray and sunscreen and, and all this stuff. That is true, but I think she just has so much more runway online in digital with D2C. And I've seen so many brands succeed at doing that prior to going into retail that I just wouldn't get distracted and I wouldn't lower her margin even more. I would focus on just like getting her core business profitable and scaling profitably and then worry about going into retail. Let's talk about some of these offers for a second. First on the table was Barbara, 250K. She was like, no big deal, 10%. But then she was like, with a $2 royalty per product until paid back, we've got all these royalties. What are these implications of these deals with royalties? And why are they potentially disadvantageous? Okay, so if you are an equity investor Mm -hmm. in a business, that means you just get shares in the business. And the way that you get paid if you are an equity investor is a company basically decides to give a dividend. And so what they do is they say, okay, this is how much money we made as a business. How much do we need to actually put into our budget for the next year? How much do we owe on debt? How much do we owe on taxes, et cetera? And then whatever's left, the business can decide either we're going to keep it or we're going to pay it out to investors. And so it can take a longer time to get upside as an equity investor. If you have a royalty, you get paid out before any of the reinvesting in the business via budget, any of the taxes, any of the debt, any of that stuff. And so you actually are further up in what's called the cap table, the capitalization table of the business. And so very tactically, the way to think about that is that if you have an agreement with a company where you get a royalty, you are much more likely to make money because every product sold, you're going to make money back. And so what these sharks are all saying is we think this is an interesting product. We are not willing to take the risk that it's going to be successful enough that we'll get paid out at the end of the day. And so we are basically going to say we want to ensure we get paid before you worry about scaling the business too much. And so it's just very founder unfriendly. And you saw that from Tony, you know, Tony, who's coming from tech and DoorDash is like, forget about it. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Like, these are such unfriendly deals to you. And they're actually going to like really kneecap your ability to grow because it's literally just taking money out of the ability to say, cool, I want to invest more in marketing. I want to invest more in selling. I want to invest more in brand, whatever. And so I think that's the way to think about it is the sharks are basically saying could be good. We're not willing to take the full risk that maybe it will be someday. And instead, we want to get paid back sooner. And that's just very founder unfriendly because the founder has less money to spend in the business. So we had an episode that actually ended up with Barbara and Tony joining forces, kind of after some prompting from the Kinfield founder. But join forces to split that deal. So essentially, both of them are going in on 250000 for 10%. But we have a founder with two sharks on her side now, which was really interesting and kind of nice to see. Would you, either of you, invest in this company knowing what we know? I would, despite me not knowing if it works, but we're operating under the assumption that it works. I think there's a ton of potential in both the fact that there's nobody else really doing this really well. She has a really beautiful brand that is distinguished and she started to build an advocacy pipeline through social. I was really impressed with what I saw there. And so I would be in. Yeah, I would be in as well. I would invest. And the reason I would invest is to me, she has a digital distribution problem. And that is something that I have experience helping companies with. And so it's like some expertise that I have that I feel like I could bring. I think if I did not have any expertise in how to drive digital distribution, I probably would not invest because I think um, that's a make or break for the company. Makes a lot of sense. 
Amazing. Very much still a company. We're in 2023. So time will tell if Kinfield stands the test of time, I suppose. That'd be rough if two weeks later you were like, and they're not a business. (laughs) Out of business. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like there's not as many products that when we're done with this, I like really want to go buy. But this is one that I'm like, I've got to know, does the bug spray work? Meanwhile, I'm in that same exact camp for the next product. So last in the tank is Bite, and this comes to us from founders Asher and Lindsay. They are seeking a $325,000 investment for a 5% stake in their company, which shakes out to a $6.5 million valuation. So this pitch was interesting because we got a bit of a history lesson. How have we been cleaning teeth as humans for the last thousands of years? So Learn some fun facts. Apparently, we started with like ox hooves and bones. Bones. I'm still using bones. You're not using bones? <laughs> eggshells. <laughs> eggshells, too. So we started with the ox hooves. We somehow, in like the Victorian era, made it to like eggshells, which I was just thinking of how abrasive that would be. And we land on toothpaste, which provides its own set of problems, right? Because it produces a lot of plastic wastes. There's a lot of preservatives in toothpaste that we end up swallowing because it's involved with brushing your teeth. And these are problems that, on top of probably helping the ox population a little bit, bite is trying to solve. So Bite is essentially these dry tablets that you put in your mouth and you chew them and you start to sort of like brush as normal. And from there, that like Bite tablet will start to foam up. And essentially you get that same experience of brushing your teeth. It comes in compostable refill packs. It's flavored naturally with peppermint oil. So it's definitely like kind of in sort of the same vein as Kinfield where it's taking that natural spin on a product that traditionally might not have been so natural although ox hooves, I suppose, are very natural. So thinking of our pitch and the information provided by both of our founders, what are we thinking of bite tabs and this spin-on toothpaste so far? Yeah, so as soon as it came on, I was like, oh, I want that. I definitely want that. I think that it's just a rising tide, uh, similar to Kinfield in terms of consumers caring deeply about this and wanting to go a different path and thinking like, why is it that I'm throwing all these toothpaste tubes away? And I think that what's really interesting about the bite product is that it does that, but it also just comes in a form that makes it easier to travel with, a whole bunch of things like that. Similar to you with Kinfield, Leslie, when I saw bite, I was like, I want to buy this product. I think it is really interesting. When thinking about how to market it, though, I was a little concerned. Do you think there's like an educational gap? I was thinking, you know, I am a little skeptical of this product because I don't know how to use it. And like, I'd probably use it the first couple of times, like completely wrong, just knowing myself because it's so different. Do you think that's an advantage or a disadvantage? Well, I think they certainly named the company appropriately to help people understand how to use it. Just bite. (laughs) Got it. (laughs) Just bite down on the tablet. Got it. (laughs) So on the education side, I like, I think you are right that getting people in the mass market to change their behavior away from something that's extremely well established is just really, really hard. And I don't think a single company can do it alone. I think what Byte has to bet on is that they are entering a market of people who care about this and are self-educating on it and that the size of that market is growing every year. And I think that is a true statement. I don't have any stats on that, but I think that is a true statement that more and more people every year, particularly as a younger generation who I think 
based on most of the surveys I've seen, the number one concern and priority for the next generation of consumers is the environment. I think they are self-educating on this and are going to care deeply about it. So to me, it's like they're a product that just they're trying to get really well positioned in a market that's going to grow for them, which means the education they individually have to do, I think, will be a lot less. Yeah. I think one thing I'm thinking about, too, is in terms of price, it's expensive. And I think thinking about the broader scope of consumers who are more value oriented, how do you get them to even consider buying this? And I think she needs some of these bigger companies to try this, to innovate on this, for her to ever even have a chance to win over more of the value-based consumers who do care about the environment, but I still like my $2 toothpaste I can go grab at the store. And I think having some of those bigger companies trying to do what she's doing could actually be beneficial in the long run just to get the education out there. Yeah, unit cost is high. Question is, there's a follow-on question, which is, what is your willingness to pay for this? Mm -hmm. And I think what you were calling out is that there's a pretty big gap between people who say they want this and what the willingness to pay is versus mass market goods. And, you know, I do think as values take hold in the market, I think willingness to pay rises for those things. It's just a question of how quickly. It's certainly made worse by a bad economy. You know, a product like this does very well in an economy that is good when people have excess capital. Mm -hmm. But when you look at your household budget because inflation is up and people have lost their jobs or wages are flat, you know, whatever, you start to be like, well, how much do I need to spend on toothpaste (laughs) and how much do I care? So I think that is one of the challenges for them. There are two things that really worried me for this company. Number one is the competition. Like, I just tried to think about, like, how do you win this market? I think you have to spend a pretty solid amount on brand or have a really incredible community that will go to bat for you all over the internet. I think that both of those things take speed and they're just expensive to do. The other thing that really worried me is the guest shark on this show was Katrina Lake the co-founder and exec chairperson of Stitch Fix, which is one of the great subscription services of our time. And she almost immediately was like, I'm out on this product. And I was like, oh no, like (laughs) you are so knowledgeable about how to like win with consumers in this space. Boy, am I worried that you are dropping out right away. So those are the two things that worried me. So as the sharks sort of started to peel back the layers of like what's going on at Byte, there was also like the desire. It seemed like they had started on Amazon and like then took their products off Amazon. What did you think of that decision to sort of take your product off arguably one of the biggest online marketplaces? I don't know how if y'all have changed in this way, but for me, like Amazon is where I go the first time I think about any product I want to buy. I looked this up. Do you know the percent of consumers who start a product search on Amazon in the United States? Hmm. I would say 70%. Nailed it. Really? Somewhere between 65 and 75%. Amazon psychic over here. So here's the thing. (laughs) They can stay off Amazon if they want to lose. (laughs) John, (laughs) it's just like so straight. It's like, yep, well, if you want to fail, you can stay off Amazon. The reason they want to stay off Amazon is the following. And these are like... In theory, good reasons. They just, unfortunately, the scales are tilted too far against them. They don't want to be on Amazon because when they go on Amazon, the price and competition issues that they have are going to be brought to everybody's forefront of their Mm -hmm. mind because they have a largely undifferentiated product. So people are going to go on Amazon, they're going to search for Byte, and there's going to be a bunch of sponsored posts for competitive toothpaste pellets at the top. And then there's going to be Byte, and then there's going to be a competitive and a competitive and a competitive. And people are going to say, oh, what's the difference between these? And say, 
oh, that one's cheaper. And so, you know, I think they say it's because they want the customer relationship. And if you sell on Amazon, you don't have the customer relationship because you don't do fulfillment and all this stuff. And I think, by the way, it's great if they can get direct to consumer relationships and they should, it's super cheap and easy for them to do all the fulfillment and all of that through platforms like Shopify. But I think that they just have to go on Amazon and that they have to just deal with the fundamental issues of the fact that it's a very competitive market and consumers are price conscious. I think that they just have to tackle it. Do you think there's another retailer that could be comparable? I'm going to go back to the Curology example again, because I've really been interested watching them grow as a company. I'm a consumer of them myself, but they recently launched in Target. So they were direct to consumer. You couldn't buy them in a store for the longest time, but they're non-prescription products you can buy. Like I've watched them increase their, their product line. They've added lip balm and skin patches, and now they're available in Target and to me, that felt like the perfect matchup of retailers. Mm-hmm. And even with Byte or Kinfield, Target to me feels like the consumer that is looking for some of these newer, trendier, eco-friendly products. So I don't know, John, is there any other, could they win anywhere else or is, is it only Amazon? Well, two potential issues that I could see. Number one is that the big box retailers have deep, deep relationships with Procter & Gamble and General Mills and all these companies. And P&G, I'm sure, pays so much money to Target every year for good placement and stuff like that. And so it is true, in a world where they are particularly unique and differentiated, they might be able to win there. But I imagine as soon as P&G launches their like natural pellet or whatever, (laughs) they're going to have the prominent placement on the end cap. So I'm not sure how long it'll last. And I think still more and more people are just buying this stuff online. They want to just subscribe to it, just get their toothpaste pellets every month. I was just going to say, it's interesting. I did a little research and both Byte and Kinfield are actually sold in a store called Credo Beauty. Their tagline is where all beauty is clean beauty. And it to me seems like a clean beauty retailer specialty store. They have 11 stores. I did a little research. <laughs> I love we're always just like, do, 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 do. <laughs> guess who's on Amazon now? Stop. Byte. Of course they are. They have to be on Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) Leslie, when 70% of consumers in your market start a search on a platform, you just don't have a choice. If your business can't survive in that environment, like you got to deal with the root cause structural issues of that, which is either price or brand or whatever. And you've got to find a strategy that can overcome that. This is your classic did not want to come on Shark Tank actually to raise money. They wanted to come on Shark Tank to get their brand better known because they're in a hyper-competitive market and need to get on Amazon and win, and they want to be able to say they're the Shark Tank brand. Yeah, so let's talk about those offers. Never let it be said that these founders didn't have a clear idea of what they were asking for because this was actually a product that ended up with no deal. So knowing what we know about Byte and knowing that they didn't actually walk away with a Shark Tank deal, would you invest in the company? I wouldn't invest, but I would potentially be a consumer. Fair enough. I love that they're doing amazing things for the environment, but I wasn't sold the way I was with Kinfield. So got a bit of a company update for you. Yes, Byte is very much still a company. So as of June 2021, the company is actually still 100% owned by the two co-founders, which is really respectable. Mm -hmm. Their annual revenue has skyrocketed to about... $10 million a year. So they are not taking chump change. They are doing pretty well. And yes, as John says, the company has caved to its customers and found its way back onto the pages of Amazon. Definitely still a company, definitely still trying to innovate in the toothpaste realm. 
So before we close out, I did have a question for you two. Which of these products is the winner of the episode to both of you? I'm going with Steve. Mm, It's so hard not to pick him. It really is. It's so hard not to just sing that jingle. But I'm going to go with Nicole from Kinfield. I really want to see this. I would love to see myself replace Deet. And if she can make that happen, I would buy it. So for me, I hope Nicole is successful and she is the winner for me. I still have the jingle in my head for I want to draw a cat for you. I want to draw a cat. Today's episode was written and produced by Matthew Brown. Production support comes from Melanie Romero. Have you told a friend about the show yet? A family member, maybe? I told Jerry, my neighbor. You don't know Jerry, but you sort of know Jerry. The guy who sits on his front porch all day, little doggo at his feet, barks at everyone. Not Jerry's fault. Well, maybe sort of Jerry's fault. Training really is about training the owner, not the dog. Anyway, tell people about the show. Okay, that does it for me. We'll see you next week in the tank for another bite.